First Peter Bible Study, Part 2, Second Introduction on Purpose. For lay leaders and deacons to conduct after the Sunday service or during a midweek Bible study session. Hear the word of our Lord from First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. I know we skipped a week due to the American holiday of Thanksgiving. That's kind of a policy here at the VLP, is we want people spending time with their families, and a big holiday is warrant for that. But we are back on track, and we're ready to talk about the purpose of First Peter. We already established that St. Peter, the apostle, is the true author of this epistle, which bears his name, and we talked about how it is a truly Catholic epistle, or universal letter. It applies to everybody in the body of Christ. We are the audience he has in mind, thus making it binding on the church today, as opposed to perhaps some dispensationalist interpretation, or John Calvin's interpretation, that it was only aimed at Christians of Jewish extraction. What the Apostle writes is directly applicable, and we are duty-bound as Christians to believe it. Nonetheless, while it is binding on all of us, we cannot hope to fully get it or embrace it unless we do two very crucial things. First, we must understand First Peter's purpose, or why he wrote what he wrote. What's the occasion? What's the tone? What does St. Peter hope to gain by writing this to us? The intended purpose of the writing is going to determine how we receive it, so that we can, well, rightly produce the intended results. That's a devotional use of the text, by the way. There's the academic use of the text, which is, what does this Bible book say? And what does that mean for us? But how do we apply it? 
How does it transform our lives? How do we bring this to the forefront of our minds and live this way? Well, that's the proper use of the term devotional. We become more devoted to God through it. But with that, we have to understand the purpose. Thankfully, our reading for today provides that. The second one, which we will bring up next week, is the structure of 1 Peter. Because if you don't know how it is organized, you don't know what to emphasize or what to bring to the forefront. The big points that St. Peter wants to make. But we'll get into that next week. On to our commentary here in 1 Peter 1 verses 1 through 9. Verse 1, we went over it last week. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. As mentioned previously, this is a greeting. It's just a greeting to Christians who are in Asia Minor. The specific names of the cities in the region doesn't detract from the epistle's Catholicity, its universal application, because the author addresses elect exiles of the dispersion. It's supposed to go to all of the elect, but the letter was to be copied and sent where Christians had settled after being dispersed. So it's likely, given this address and Christ's messages to the churches in Asia Minor, if you go over to Revelation chapter 1, he brings it up, the majority of the first century believers at this time were probably residing in Asia Minor to avoid Roman and Jewish persecution. This is close to the time of the Jewish War, A.D. 66 through 70. And Christians were the first ones to skip town because Jesus said, All right, when you start seeing all this siege work and everything, uh, flee. <laughs> if you're here, get out. And all of the church said, Yes, sir, amen, we will do that. And they ended up somewhere. Where did they go? Well, Asia Minor. Even more interesting to us is verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. The second verse, of course, is a Trinitarian formula as part of the greeting. You see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit present here, with God the Father being the one to elect people or cause us to be born again. That's in verse 3. God the Holy Spirit sanctifying us and our Lord Jesus being the propitiation for our sins. You might notice that phrase, sprinkling with his blood. Well, that's a sacrificial reference to the Mosaic Covenant, Leviticus 5 verse 9 and elsewhere. What did a priest do with the blood of a sacrifice? He sprinkled it over the altar and over the mercy seat. You know, Old Testament religion was very, very bloody. The writer of Hebrews will say that, well, yes, it was because the Old Testament religion, that is the Old Covenant, was painting a picture for people of what Jesus would do for us. St. Peter is in harmony with the author of Hebrews here saying, yes, Jesus was our sin offering, and his blood was sprinkled for our redemption. I mentioned in the last recording that St. Peter doesn't bring up anything new. 
His epistle is more exhortative. It's more about encouraging believers and explaining what's happening to them. But he doesn't bring up new doctrine. Yet at the same time, he shows a deep familiarity with it. You might be wondering, well, it just says sprinkling with his blood. You're right, and at first glance that might not seem to mean very much, but it means a whole lot. That is a phrase that by itself connects St. Peter with the author of Hebrews. By sanctification, it connects St. Peter with everything St. Paul says about sanctification by the Spirit. And with foreknowledge, of course, the New Testament talks about God being the one to send his only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, for this. So yes, it is a Trinitarian formula that also describes the function of each person of the Trinity as he relates to us. God the Father is my creator. He is the one who calls me. God the Holy Spirit is my sanctifier who makes me holy. And God the Son is the one who redeemed me. He is my king, my high priest. He is my capital P prophet. And as God himself, he is my Lord who died for me and rose again. Now verses 3 through 5 get into a little bit more detail. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, verse 2 cites foreknowledge. According to the foreknowledge of God, who caused us to be born again to a living hope. That means that he says, God knew you from eternity past, and he chose you according to that foreknowledge. Does that mean he's supporting the Arminian or free will Baptist position where God says, all right, I'm going to read the script of all of history, pick out the ones who will believe in Jesus according to their free will, and then save them accordingly, declare them elect? Not necessarily. You know, he gives all credit and our salvation to God, including faith. He guards us through faith. We do not guard ourselves through faith. St. Peter is clearly a monergist here because it says God caused us to be born again, not our own decision. But while God is the one who saves us, he's the only actor in salvation, St. Peter talks about God guarding us through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is preservation of the saints, not perseverance of the saints. We can't call St. Peter's monergism a Calvinistic one, where a decree of salvation or a decree of election was made at some point in eternity past, and therefore you are saved, you will never not be saved, you cannot backslide nor apostatize, it's pretty much automatic. This is just going to happen, and you don't have any sort of say in that. But to St. Peter, the vehicle of our salvation 
is the resurrection or the atonement in general. Christ having sprinkled his blood for us as our sin offering. And then our living hope is through the resurrection of Christ Jesus. It doesn't boil down to whether you are elect or not. It boils down to Jesus died for you. Do you believe in him? I understand there might be a Calvinist listening to this saying, well, we believe the same thing, but it's a matter of priority in what is mentioned first. You see, what St. Peter is saying here is, Jesus died and rose again for you. And he preserves you through faith so that you will be one of the elect. If you believe, then you are one of the elect. A more Calvinistic formulation of it is going to be talking about how Christ died for the elect so that the elect could be saved according to their election. That is the emphasis, the central tenet there, that predestination element that I'm just not seeing in what St. Peter is writing. But also we Lutherans will note that every time election or predestination or foreknowledge are brought up, it's talked about regarding gospel. St. Peter wants to focus on salvation. So even if the Calvinists are right in some sense, the main point is gospel. He's future-oriented, but in the already-but-not-yet sense. St. Peter talks about being born again, indicating a familiarity with Christ's words in John 3, 3. You must be born again. But... For any of your snarky friends that say, ah, but in John 3, 3, it says born from above in the Greek. Well, the phrase Christ uses in John 3 could mean either one, born from above or born again. But occasionally you hear somebody say, oh man, no, you gotta already be there, dude. You gotta already be born from above. Now, St. Peter puts that to rest here in 1 Peter 1, verse 3, when he uses the term anagonesas. Strong's number 313, it literally means born another time, or born again. The believer, being reborn, already belongs to God, and is thus saved. Yet the believer has not yet received the eternal blessed life, which marks the resurrection of the dead. We're not in the New Jerusalem yet. So to be saved in this life is to be preserved for the salvation to come, a final deliverance from our last enemy, death. St. Peter here is consistent with 1 Corinthians 15.26, which says that the final enemy to be defeated is death. It is about the already but not yet. You are saved, you are being saved, you will be saved. The same way that we are saved by Christ through his life, death, and resurrection. Verses 6 and 7 say, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is evident that the congregation to whom he writes, well, the church at large at the time, well, it was undergoing a lot of pain. There was persecution abroad, there had been a lot of exiles from homelands, John was out there in Patmos, 
And if we look at the dating around AD 66 to 68 here, the Jewish war is going on. So for a lot of the people in Asia Minor, their relatives are out fighting and dying, if not being, you know, innocent victims of rebels and Romans alike. The question may very well be in their minds, guys, what's going on here? Why is this happening? Why is God permitting this? And St. Peter says, listen, gold must be refined. Precious metals are burned up to wipe out all impurities. God is using these bad occasions for good, namely your sanctification. So it's no accident in the canon of Scripture that 1 Peter comes right after Hebrews and James, which both teach that suffering can be a means of making us more righteous. The author of Hebrews highlights in Hebrews chapter 12 the disciplinary act of perfecting us, while St. James talks about steadfastness as a fruit of trial. But for St. Peter, he wants to look at the general perfection being worked in the believer through their suffering so that they can be better believers, more faithful to our Lord. As Christians have always been persecuted, we always have and always will be until Christ returns, it's something for us to internalize as well. Now, verses 8 and 9 say, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, these two verses contain both exhortation and encouragement. St. Peter is commenting on how the believers are now, and the fruit of that in the future. So he's highlighting the joy that comes from being saved, right? Having faith in Christ. But you can't help but notice that this is an attaboy. The verbs he's using for things like, you do not see him, you believe in him, and you love him, that's all active, that's indicative. Now think about that. When you have a word like love or agape, that is to sacrificially love and serve the other for their own sake. St. Peter is telling the churches in Asia Minor, you're doing that. That's a commendation. That's the apostle saying, good job. Now comparing that with the author of Hebrews, who says, I'm going to educate you on why Jesus is supreme and to tell you that you should stay a Christian on account of that. And then St. James saying, all right, time to dress you down in order to purify you. St. Peter says, well, you're doing a good job. You're doing great. Let's keep that going. I have wonderful things to talk to you about. Now, there are certainly exhortations in the book of 1 Peter. There are directions he gives us. But the purpose and intention of this epistle is encouragement. He centers his writing throughout this whole thing on the work of Christ in us. How our suffering is a means of identifying with Christ and getting closer to him. And of course that means giving directions for our conduct. You know, believers should behave consistently with being saved. But... That comes after reassurance that our Lord sees us, saves us, 
commends us and has given us a dignity and a status which did not belong to us when we were non-believers. As we read, it is good to look for that encouragement that he has began his letter expressing. Next week we will get into the structure of this and the pattern of emphasis that St. Peter gives us for reading his epistle. But until then, our Lord bless you and keep you. Amen and amen.